Hello, and welcome to another Sports Next Door podcast. Today is Friday, March 5th. My name is Owen, and I'm joined, as I always am, by my neighbor, Max. How's it going, my friend? Good. It's a super fight weekend, so I'm excited for that. It's the first podcast on like a proper super fight weekend. Yes, for sure. There's going to be plenty of uh, exciting action in the sports world. We have the NBA All-Star Game, which should be interesting. Uh, hockey's in full swing. We got college basketball in full swing and a little bit of football news and a little bit of baseball to, to uh, I don't know, sample, if you will, uh, as we uh, look forward to more and more sport action as, as we move along into March, already almost a week into March. It felt like yesterday was halfway through February. So we're really flying now. Uh, the days are going by quickly. Yeah, it does feel like a different season now with daytime ending around seven o'clock. And just, I've caught myself so many times. It's still minus 10, minus 15 degrees out, but I think the sun is just closer to the earth or the angles better because like it hits and it just warms you up different. Like I've caught a couple times where it's coming into the house, me just sitting with my back against like a glass door or something because it's just hitting warmer this month. Yeah, we are getting closer. Daylight savings, I think, is next weekend. Um, and then, I don't know, I feel like Canada's still got kind of one big cold push left, at least one, probably one in March and then one more in April. And and then we're finally in the clear in terms of making it to spring. But uh, yeah, for now, we continue to huddle up inside and take advantage to a little bit of a warmer week. I think it's going to be double digits on Monday here in London, at least. Ooh. I know. <laughs> that that'd be a it was minus 10 today or yesterday yeah. so that'd be like a 20 degree swing in half a week i mean i saw people at the tennis courts when i was out on my run the other day and that's got me uh oh long in yeah i'm happy i brought the basketball with me back from winter break so now i can go and shoot some hoops maybe uh if it gets warm enough that the snow's gone from from the local courts yeah <laughs> yeah should be good. Still just trying to find anything really to, to pass the time. Uh, but I will jump right into our agenda for today. We're going to start out with some hockey, which I don't even know if we've done that before. Uh, and we'll have some combat corner, uh, some basketball talk, and then just a little, little bit of uh, football baseball action at the end. It probably won't be more than five minutes. And yeah, it's looking to be a, a pretty packed show. So why don't we jump right into it and talk about our dearly beloved Toronto Maple Beliefs, who lost last night. Um, but honestly, I can't even really generate any like sadness, upset feelings at all because of the absolutely dominant performance they laid on the uh, Edmonton Oilers this past week. And it's a back-to-back game against the Vancouver Canucks. Uh, they've spent a lot of energy going up against one of the most highly octane duos in the NHL and McDavid and Drysaddle, and you can't win every game. So they let this one slip to the Canucks. Um, But really like, I want to talk about the the three games against Edmonton, a 13, one scoring lopsided scoring affair. And they finish up with a six, one win on Wednesday night after embarrassing the Oilers in the first two games. And they just like, it was masterful. They won in every facet of the game. It was, it was just unbelievable to watch. 
yeah, I that this team that we're seeing, I I was ready to praise and talk up so highly, feeling a little more uh, hesitant to do so after last night because I think there it shows there's still a level of greatness they have not managed to reach. But let's talk about the Oilers series for a bit because you were talking about Austin Matthews as the best leaf we've ever seen. This is the best defense I've ever seen from the Toronto Maple Leafs team in my lifetime. We truly, for the first time in my memory, have a top two pairing in Morgan Riley and TJ Brody. I thought Brody was absolutely phenomenal in the Wednesday game. He just... Edmonton had no what I'd call grade A scoring opportunities. Not one. They, they generated some looks at the net, but they didn't have a single chance really where I was holding my breath. Oh no, here we go. Here's Connor McDavid setting up an open one-timer, Leon Dreisaitl in the slot with the puck. They had none of those. And a big reason I thought was TJ Brody, because every time he was on the ice defensively and Edmonton was taking it up, looking to make that cross crease pass, looking to make a move to the net, Brody just stopped it. I, there were too many times for me to count, but I caught him laying out to stop two cross crease one-timers. I caught him stick checking McDavid on the break at least two or three times. He looked, I mean, he always looks great skating up with the puck, dictating the rush that the power play Keith seems to have settled on right now a bit of a compromise between the stacked first and balancing it out the two Brody doing a nice job leading that second unit I that top two pairing is where the defense starts for this team and it's the best defense the Toronto Maple Leafs have seen I think yeah I can't agree more and we were talking maybe a month ago, the best defensive pairing may in fact have been uh, Muzzin Hall during that time because both of those guys were at the top of their game playing really well. Hall, especially like uh, the price that we're paying him and the contract that he's on and the steps that he's taken these last two seasons have been absolutely unreal. Um, and now it seems like with the Muzzin injury and Hall taking a bit of a step back because you can't maintain that level of play consistently over a full season. It seems like Brody has really stepped up as that guy that every night is going to be solid um, and super active stick. And it's led to more active sticks from your forwards, just more defensive responsibility overall. Uh, and yeah, the, the team effort has been excellent. Like just on the season as a whole as well, it seems like the Leafs more than ever have been able to move a lot of the shooting opportunities, just pushing them to the outside, making everything just a little bit easier for their goalies. And they've been getting great stuff from their goalies. Their backups now are six and one on the season. Uh, Each or six and two, I guess with the the game last night, Um, but they get a win from each of their goalies uh, with, with Freddie coming back on Wednesday. So one for each goalie that they have in, in each of those games against Edmonton and, uh, yeah, just like fantastic all-around effort. All facets of the game uh, ha- were dominant in that Edmonton series. And yeah, they're sitting at the top of the table. There's not much to complain about. And like, just so happy. This is so exciting. I, I just wish I was able to like go to Maple Leaf Square, or go somewhere to really like fully enjoy the the special thing that's happening right now. Yeah, I might have to invest in a bit of swag besides the Marner jersey I have for playoff time. 
the other shout out I wanted to give was to John Tavares from the Wednesday night game against the Oilers because Edmonton, they were out of the game for almost the entire 60 minutes. There were really two segments of the game in my memory where they had any momentum or anything going. The first came in the first two minutes of the game. They were chirping, buzzing around the net, getting some shots towards but the Leafs were able to settle that down pretty quickly and just get their game going through four lines. And then the second came right after Edmonton's only goal in the series. It started with a lot of pressure from that Nugent Hopkins dry side line. And just that sustained pressure was really the first time they had it all game. They scored on that pressure and then their team got rolling a little through, through like three minutes, all four lines kind of came out for Edmonton, had a good shift. They were the ones like dominating. We were just chipping it out. They were taking it right back into our end. And then Tavares had a great stick check and play right on our own blue line to take the puck, skated up, got to Nylander for that like beauty Willie Styles magic and the Leafs took control of the game again. So it was just, it was slight. I, I, I don't want to talk about that Ottawa loss every time a team scores a goal on us when we have a lead, but it was just, it was nice to see, okay, Ottawa's got that, or Edmonton, excuse me, has that momentum. They're starting to press. This is starting to look like a different hockey game. And then great defense, defense from Tavares reverses the momentum. So TJ Brody, John Tavares, and Frederick Anderson, of course, my favorite players from that night. Uh, yeah, and uh, looking ahead, they have a game on Saturday against Vancouver, which they should win at, at this point where these two teams are at and the expectations. This Leafs team should not drop two in a row to a not very good Vancouver team, but really uh, they could lose it because it is a bit of a, a trap game where they're looking ahead. They have a three game series coming up against the Winnipeg Jets, who now, as a result of the, the Oilers series, are now in second in the North Division and they have a game in hand. Um, and I believe they're five points behind the Leafs in the standings. So this is going to be the, the biggest, like we said, right? Another challenger has, has stepped up, another two seed and it's up to the Leafs to really prove that they are the best team in this division. They belong to be on top. Uh, they need to probably, I'd say, three points out of these three games minimum would would be what you're looking for. Um, and if they can do that, if, if they come out positively in this series, they it would be, you could say that they have the North locked up because – uh, three more games and they're get they're over halfway through the season and uh, if if they come out positively against the Jets it's just with the loser points that we have in with overtime losses it's it's very hard to build comebacks when you're down six or seven points in the standings and so it's it's a big week coming up for the Leafs yeah and it's gonna start Saturday night I mean the two biggest miss I caught the first two periods of last night's game not the third which it doesn't seem like I missed much but Justin Hall in the doghouse for sure and uh Michael Hutchinson for one of the first times this season both both goals kind of very similar <laughs> you can lay almost all of the blame on those two shoulders um which happens it's not going to be every player at 110 percent every night 
and Thatcher Demko had a excellent game, but that's when you're the best offense in the league, you can't let a goalie hold you to that. And they generated chances. Uh, Nylander had some fantastic passes. I, I've kind of stopped even holding my breath when McKayev's in front of the net with the puck, unless it's like a rebound chance. Um, Austin Matthews had like his, one of his signature opportunities that there might've been a breakaway or two. So you can even have those Justin Hall, those uh, Michael Hutchinson mistakes. The The second goal, I think, was even harder to watch than the first one. And you can still come back and win the game when the offense is firing. So that's one or two players having momentary lapses isn't a breakdown of the system. So you're going to look for, I don't know what Campbell's injury status is, but you think Frederick Anderson should probably get the start. It not Campbell and you look for Hall to have a rebound game but mostly you look for the offense to start clicking and it's we have such a short memory here in Leafs Nation fandom but it's probably time to start asking Matthews where art thou been a few games since his last goal he's been buzzing around the net getting scoring chances but we're going to need that production, especially come the Winnipeg series. So it would be nice to get the juices flowing Saturday night and just return to form that we saw in that Edmonton series. My guess is the wrist is still bothering a little him a little bit. And they do play Saturday, but then they do get two nights off before they play the Jets starting on Tuesday. So uh, soften up the schedule a little bit over the next couple days and hopefully get those guys some rest so that they'll be ready to go uh, when it when it comes to winning time. Uh, yeah. Yeah, they're going to be facing a good Jets team, though. Uh, I didn't catch the entire game they played against the Habs last night, nor the entire game they played against the Canucks two nights before, but they're on a two-game win streak, and everything I saw was just them rolling over the other teams, especially on the breakouts. Just a lot of speed, a lot of strength on the puck, numbers in the zone, and phenomenal passing to create plays and generate scoring chances, and that led to some pretty goals against the Canucks, more ugly ones against the Habs. I the Habs got like a late one to even the game at 3-3. I don't know how they scored their second one or how the third period went. The shot totals seem to have increased exponentially for Montreal at the end. But uh, it, this team is looking like the number two team in the North Division, the way they were able to dominate the Habs in the first two periods and just not, kind of similar to the Leafs, have a strong forecheck, continuously generate offensive chances the best defense is a good offense so you're making Montreal have to carry the puck 200 feet all the time and you're making it tough on them and not giving up much and generating your own scoring chances Connor Hellebuck one of the top goalies continues to be and uh, Dubois I think had his second overtime goal in Winnipeg that's where I want to end it with the Jets is they, after the Leafs, I'd say have the most complete top six in the North division for sure. With that, that Shifley Wheeler Stastny line seems to just fill out each other in all the right places. And I feel like that Dubois Connor Ehlers line has 
untapped potential still. Those are still players all stepping into their prime and seeing how far they can go. And you like everything you're seeing from them so far. And they're providing more than enough for a second line, but they could get even better. So for sure, that series should be interesting. But hey, that's what we were saying about the Oilers a week ago. And so I'm very excited for that series. We'll get to preview it a little more Monday night morning and, I guess. yeah and and you'll know that matthews is going to see a lot of dubois in that se- series after the battles they had in the in the columbus series a couple of months ago but uh just to talk briefly about montreal obviously they lose last night but they did strap snap their losing streak against the senators uh after firing coach claude julian um i i still i i just i don't think we've already talked i don't think the top end talent of montreal is there and Maybe they can change a bit of the attitude in the dressing room, but uh, you can tell the Leafs and the Jets and maybe even the Oilers are just another class above them right now. Um, Who knows if they'll be in on making some moves before the deadline, but uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to follow them as they try to right the ship after a rough couple of weeks. I mean, if they... I think they're 0 for 4 or 1 for 4 or 1 for 5 in overtime or something right now. So we might be talking about them very differently if they had a better 3-on-3 game. But a lot of these close games, that extra point has slipped out of their hands and gone to the Jets, gone to the Sens. So it's strange. I, I, I always feel like the 60 minutes should be what you evaluate. And if they're having all these games in 60 minutes end at a tie that's not on the losing end necessarily but they're missing out on points and frankly i think they're lucky even to step away with that one point in the jets game based off what i saw so be interesting i don't know who their most recent series will be i hope they have one against uh, the flames soon because i don't know what to make of that team they've been so up and down in their series against the senators yes so the the canadians will play the jets tomorrow night and then they go to the vancouver and then following that they have calgary so uh they'll they'll have some western games to play but um yeah the flames really hard to make sense of what's going on there and and announced last night they fired their coach Jeff Ward um and signed uh Daryl Sutter to a three-year contract so not just f- finishing out this season he was a former GM and coach of the Flames so he's been around the organization for a while but um reading articles today it seems like he isn't the best choice um a, a couple of anecdotes coming out um and already the Flames have been uh, caught in some pretty brutal scandals the last couple of seasons with their coaching decisions. But it's just like some of the anecdotes I have here is Daryl Sutter. Uh, he, like the LA Kings players locked him out of their dressing room one time because they didn't want to de- deal with him. Uh, they, <laughs> he has been fined $100,000 or the team has for, uh, like suspend for allowing a suspended player to skate with the team. And uh, there's another anecdote that he has kicked a player in the lower back on the bench and uh, has, and treated Matt Green poorly when he had a concussion in a team meeting. He was rude to a female stewardess um, because he wouldn't let the team eat after a bad loss, just 
seen there's some obviously everyone has made a, a couple of mistakes or a couple of had a couple of bad moments uh but it doesn't seem like he necessarily is going to be the guy that's going to turn things around in Calgary so interesting that they signed him to three years and uh the the I hope the locker room likes him because if they don't it's just going to get worse there yeah I guess I don't know too much about him other than his resume it is i remember having my eyebrows a little raised when I saw this was a guy who took the flames to the cup as a coach who won two cups with the LA Kings and yet they didn't they hired him from an advisory position with the Ducks I believe so it does speak to the situation a little that he wasn't currently a head coach but uh Calgary really just has been trying to find a mainstay head coach for a while now. I think this is their fourth hire in the past five years. They get some behind the bench already experienced, so they're not trying someone new. And a lot of the times I think it's just about giving the players a reset. Maybe that uh, you have been hearing like a lot of the Calgary players unhappy with the level of play they're at giving themselves and their own team some tough love so maybe a coach who reinforces that a little will help like the Chikuk and the Lucic have both been pretty vocal in their criticisms of their team play so maybe some tough loves what they need maybe switching NHL coaches like a carousel rarely actually does anything I don't know we'll see yeah definitely will be interesting to follow uh we'll finish up our nhl news by going south of the border but not too far south uh, just about an hour past the uh border to buffalo um where things continue to just be awful for sabers fans i i feel for them uh because it has been a terrible run and they were really bad and then they got jack eichel and now they're stuck still being valid uh ralph kruger refuses to play uh nine million dollar player jeff skinner um just refuses to play him because i guess he's not providing what kruger's looking for the sabers have now lost five in a row um and it seems like their season really is going nowhere taylor hall the, the bet on himself that he made is turning out to be a very very brutal bet uh and and the buzz continues to grow about the fact that the Sabres, you kind of have to go back and rebuild again at this point because they missed on a lot of first-round picks and you're stuck with Jack Eichel and not much else. Uh, you've got Rasmus Sandin as well, who's solid, but uh, people are talking about Jack Eichel being moved. And, and I don't know if Buffalo ownership or uh, the general manager will ever actually do that because it's so hard to ever move a player of that caliber you always end up losing a trade, but um, it is interesting to think about because ugh, I just feel so bad. It's, it'd be like the Leafs just being brutal the last couple of years and, and already talk of like trading Austin Matthews. And I can't even imagine doing that. Yeah. Well, we had, we had that first crack at it where we were picking up guys like Kadri and Riley in the draft. And then we bolstered the Russell with a castle of enough. And it was like, here we go. We're going to make a run. And it was just like, no, that was, that was a pseudo rebuild toss all that away. Start from scratch again. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, 
Hall, Eichel, Skinner, Bennett comes to mind, uh, Cousins. I was kind of glad not to be in the same division as Buffalo this season, and that seems to be totally irrelevant. There's so much value there that, I mean, you could probably really bolster the drafts if you're willing to burn it all down and start from scratch, and I don't know how much more failure you need before that's your only choice, but... Yeah, I mean, Eichel came in the same draft as McDavid, eh? No, he was with Matthews. He was number two behind No, that was Line. Oh, yeah, sorry, you're right. Yeah, he was two behind McDavid. You're correct. Uh, Yeah. So probably would have been a number one player in almost any other draft. Um, Yeah. And and (laughs) it's, yeah, it is so hard to move off a player like that. Uh, I have a couple, I'm reading an article here on Sportsnet. So a couple of like interesting ideas to bounce off of you. My absolute nightmare would be this first one where uh, Eichel gets moved to the Boston Bruins for uh, David Krejci and four first round draft picks from the Boston Bruins. Um, That terrifies me. I guess the salaries are, it would work. Can you imagine uh, Eichel running a line after you have to face Bergeron, uh, Pasternak, and Marshan, and then they just roll out the next line of Eichel and whoever else, like oh, it, that gives me chills thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, that. I mean, that would be as good a top six in the NHL as you can find for sure. I, it, those teams are just so off my radar right now. Yeah, and then the other two teams that have been more realistically linked to Jack Eichel are. Uh, the Los Angeles Kings and then probably the number one suitor for him right now would be the New York Rangers. Uh, they're the team obviously with the most money and they are a team that's on the rise. Um, and they already have a Chemi Panarin. Panarin. Wow. I really struggled with that one. Um, and they've, they've kind of got a couple solid goalies and Jacob Truba in the back end and, and having a centerman obviously is, is kind of, another really key position that you need. And so if they could make a move for him or wait it out and get him in free agency, then this Rangers team is just another uh, key position filled for them as they rebuild towards becoming a, a contender once again. And, and that might be a good fit for him there. Yeah. If I'm Buffalo, I'd, I'd rather bet on a team like the Kings or the Rangers who are attempting to ascend right now than like a proven top team like the Boston Bruins just in terms of return on your draft picks I like you said uh, that I mean Bergeron and Marchand don't have that much longer on their uh, longevity so maybe you can time the picks and say this Boston Bruins teams with just a Pasternak and an Eichel is going to be too thin and the return on those draft picks seems promising whereas the Rangers and Kings might do well in the draft for the next couple of years and then start to ascend. So, I mean, it all depends on uh, what picks GMs are willing to offer up. I, that's all you can ask for, for an Eichel. So. Yeah. I think in the end he won't get moved be, just because he, like, he's just too valuable. It's hard to even, there's no real precedent really for this type of trade. And in the end, I think they're going to end up losing him to free agency, which will suck. 
but you just it's so hard to sell your fans on trading a player like that because most of what you're getting back is not even like tangible it's not like a guy you can point so i was reading comments in this article someone mentioned like colorado might do ranton and byram and then a, a pick which would be interesting but and and that's actually a trade where as buffalo ownership you can point to ranton and, and you can point to byram and see these these are cornerstones right this is these are like proven nhl commodities or well at least ranton is but if you're making a trade for mostly draft capital, and this was similar for in a James Harden trade, like you, you want to actually have something you can show fans because you know that that pick is most likely not going to be number one for either the for any of the teams that you're trading him to because he's going to make a team better. So yeah, it it it's an unprecedented kind of trade market, and he would fetch a lot in return. Um. So it'll be interesting to follow. I feel I just feel bad for Buffalo Sabres fans, man. Like, I, at least they have the Bills because th- it's just been a rough goal for the last decade almost. Yeah, I think it's probably almost at the point where they say this experiment hasn't worked out. Time to move in a new direction. I I would say the uh, Bruins Leafs Kessel trade worked out well for a team giving up like a marquee star difference maker player and getting an unfortunately excellent return on those draft picks. Uh, Tyler Sagan and Dougie Hamilton being the two teams Boston drafted, although neither player totally blossomed into their own in the Bruins logo. Okie dokie. That was uh, a little bit more hockey talk than usual, but uh, fun to really break things down and we'll have some more action to catch up on on Monday, but for now we'll take a quick break and come back for some combat corner. And we're back and it's time <laughs> to break down the upcoming UFC 259. Three title fights in an absolutely outrageous card and Max is here to break it all down for us. Max, what can we look forward to uh for this weekend? Man. For once, I don't remember when the last time, but you can look forward to the entire main card. It's just going to be salivating for 10 p.m. to start, and it's not going to be one of those where you have to you like set your drink making time or like something to do in between some of the like between the opener and the title fight. Um, five really competitive, relevant, important tense matchups on the main card as of right now there's a full 15 fights on the card with three of those fights being 25 minute title fights so can also just if you're planning on sitting down for the early prelims expect to be in your chair for a long time i i almost feel like the ufc set up this card expecting a couple of the fights to fall off and to have to do some shuffling and typically in this last 30 hour crunch we will see at least one or two fall off but as of the last time i checked this morning all 15 fights still seem to be scheduled so might be a packed prelims but with such a packed card and so much to talk about on the main card i can really only do that so we're gonna talk about the five fights on the main card starting off with the main event the super fight israel adesanya the undefeated ufc middleweight champion takes on jan blahovich the newly crowned light heavyweight champion of the ufc division who 
has done so winning three of his last four fights by knockout culminating in that beautiful performance against the fairly heavy favorite Dominic Reyes and this is a super fight it's Israel Adesanya, a guy who's done everything he's promised so far at the middleweight division. He came and he said, I'm I'm the new dog. I'm pissing all over the division. And he did just that. In a little over a year, he became the interim champion. Uh, I had a lot of doubts about him against Whitaker, and he put all those away easily. And then he just had one, probably his signature career performance against Paulo Costa, a guy that a fight that everyone thought would be competitive and interesting, and it was certainly not competitive, although it was very interesting. And he's going to be looking to bring those same tools that he's put on display in so many virtuoso performances against a bigger, stronger, more powerful, more dangerous man in Jan Blachowicz. And that's really what this fight is about. Can Izzy continue to do perform the magic he performed at middleweight at a higher weight class that's really what a super fight is and that magic is going to be his speed his footwork his striking iq and it's going to be against a guy who has more power than the guy he's faced guys he's faced and better grappling for sure a more filled out frame just the the threats are there there's a reason fighters cut weight and get to the lowest division they can it's because when you have the weight advantage that stacks the fight in your favor in so many ways and i remember izzy's first fight he weighed in at like 182 pounds i think and wondering if middleweight was for him but he's come in more at weight he hasn't bulked up for this fight though so he's sticking with what got him to the dance party and going to see how that speed matches up against Blahovich. It's most, I don't know who the onus is going to be on, whether it's going to be, is Izzy going to lead? Is he going to try and wait for Jan to swing at him, make him miss, and then make him pay? Fingers very much crossed. We don't get anything close to that uh, Romero... Adesanya fight that had like a combined 15 strikes thrown over 25 minutes watching Jan's fights I mean it's crazy because I when I got into UFC and watched Jan Blahovich, I thought of this guy first and foremost as a grappler and the world's kind of fallen in love with his power recently because he's had those three knockouts in his last four wins over Luke Rockhold, Corey Anderson, and Dominic Reyes. But I I think the grappling is by far going to be his biggest advantage and what you say that in a lot of Adesanya's fights but what makes this one interesting more so than the others is going to be the frame difference. I mean with Adesanya not bulking up and Jan a thick big middleweight who's going to have slightly less height and reach than Izzy, but still going to be a much narrower gap than Adesanya is used to. When Jan gets his hands around Izzy, is the mixture of technique and athleticism that he's put on display so far to really avoid almost any and all grappling situations still going to be enough? Or is the power of Blahovich just going to 
nullify what Izzy has been able to do so far. If what kind of pace is Jan going to set? Because in the Dominic Reyes fight, he looked very composed, very patient. He knew one or two of his strikes would swing the fight in his favor. And that's what he did just one at a time, hurting Dominic, making him more reticent, more hesitant, accumulating damage to the body, damage to the legs, damage to the nose. And Reyes just looked fearful in the last couple exchanges and it eventually led to Jan finding the one shot to put it away. That slow counter-strike weight style though is going to really get him into trouble if he doesn't have an answer for Izzy's leg kicks though. I mean, that's essentially what worries me for Jan is the style he came out with is kind of similar to what Paulo Costa came out with against Adesanya. Just stay centered, stay composed, slowly move forward, and Izzy was just able to circle and faint and kick him all day. And we've seen so many times, like five or six hard kicks to the calf and the fight's basically over. There's not much the opponent can do. Of course, uh, the grappling will be an equalizer. I, it doesn't get much more dramatic than the Rory McDonald performance against Douglas Lima, where Lima compromised McDonald's leg to the point that he couldn't walk, and Rory just shot out in the last round and jumped on the takedown and won the fight like that. So Jan will have that option if there's leg damage to just take the fight to a place where the leg isn't a big deal. And that's going to be something McGregor, uh, Costa, Rivera didn't really have three guys in recent memory who've been pretty badly affected by those kicks. And that's sort of how Khabib neutralized them against Gaethje. Just you time one kick and get the takedown. So the question for me then from Jan is going to be, has he fall in love too much with his power you often hear him talking about polish power the legendary polish power well just don't take the fight where you have the biggest advantage because if you try and no one's been able to win a striking match with izzy in the ufc gaslam got close but in the end in that fifth round he got utterly dominated so if you try and match him strike for strike you're gonna get into trouble but it, it certainly helps to mix up the approach and the body kick for Jan is what has me most interested and intrigued because he had so much power in those kicks against Reyes. He landed two and there was this nasty welty bruise on uh, Reyes's side and Israel's like a skinny boy. We know this. Uh, You've heard a lot of people say it. So you've got to think even one of those body kicks landing against Izzy could be huge in this fight. And that's the one thing Costa did land in his fight against Izzy. So I think part of Adesanya's phenomenal defense comes from being able to predict and neutralize what the opponent does. And that works really well when they're throwing hands at him. The more versatile the opponent is, the harder that's going to be, and the more it becomes a bread and butter back and forth MMA match. So, fantastic main event. I, does Adesanya continue the run into stardom, 
or can Jan Blahovich successfully defend his 205-pound title and carve out a reign for himself? I'm so interested to find out, but I don't know when that question is going to start entering my mind on Saturday night because there's so many good fights on this card. The next title fight to talk about is Amanda Nunes versus Megan Anderson. Megan Anderson, uh, you're making a face there. Hi, well, I'm just looking at the odds for this fight, and uh, Nunes is like a minus 1,200 favorite, so it's not looking good for Anderson. No, that, that does sound about right based on what we've seen from their careers so far. The The biggest question of this fight is really just going to be, does Nunez want to strike with Anderson or does she just want to win? Because Megan Anderson, I'll talk a little bit more about what's intriguing about her, but her two the two fights she's had against her two highest level opponents, they've both just made it look easy against her with the grappling. And one of those opponents was Holly Holm, who has added some grappling to her game in recent years. And that was kind of the coming out party of that, but still a lifelong kickboxer and not crazy athlete. So to get dominated by Holly Holm in the grappling like that, and then Felicia Spencer, submitted her in under a round and you've got to think amanda nunez's grappling is at least on par if not better than felicia spencer's so really the biggest question is just going to be how does amanda nunez want to approach this fight because if she wants to just take it straight to the mat look for ground and pound and hunt a submission it's probably going to be that simple and that easy based on the defense we've seen from Anderson in the past. I mean, we saw Nunez kind of do exactly that in the Jermaine Durandamine fight where she came out looking to test Durandamine on the feet. Uh, She kind of blitzed her with her athleticism got some good licks in, got it to the ground, had ferocious ground and pound, and Durandamy weathered it, stayed in there, and then really turned the tables on the striking and started getting the advantages. But then every time Amanda Nunes wanted to take it to the ground, she did because she's just the most complete, most well-rounded, best fighter at her size and weight. The women's MMA GOAT. For sure, there's not even any doubt in that and because no one comes close to that level of completeness. He, she looked like the best striker in women's for a while. Durandamy tested and challenged that, but ultimately it didn't matter because Nunez's grappling was still so high level. So will she be willing to test around with Anderson on the feet or go straight to the grappling is the interesting question because no one's wanted to stay on the feet with Megan Anderson. You say that much for her. She landed two strikes on Holly Holm and Holm was right at the grappling. Um, Her most recent fight, she landed one or two strikes and the opponent went right to the clinch work and for good reason because the next time it went on the feet, Anderson put her out with like a pretty sweetly placed straight shot and i remember some of her invicta fights she like her opponents would have broken orbital bones after anderson's tko ko victory this girl just has so much power in her hands and that's mostly what makes this fight interesting but 
what also I'm curious about is the mental fortitude of Anderson in this situation, because say what you want about her performances, but she's been staring at the peak of women's MMA for almost half her career, I'd say. She was supposed to fight Chris Cyborg, who was at the time the top, the highest threat, the most dangerous woman in the sport. And she was supposed to fight her back in, I think, like the summer of 2017, maybe even 2016. And that fight didn't happen. But when she did get signed to the UFC, that was always, it was always one step away from Cyborg. And then Nunes came and showed an even higher level. But for Anderson, that was where her eyes were looking. So she's kind of been training for this moment for almost five years, I'd say. And I'm curious what that brings to the table like does is there a mental fortitude that is going to be shown a calmness a game plan an ability to put everything together in the right moment that if you had to kind of brew a scenario for that this would be a plausible one um it's no secret that the hole in her game is her grappling that's been apparent long before her time in the ufc and it's been made more clear with her time in the UFC, she has an excellent head coach in James Krause. So you know they've been working on it. And so I'll go back to, does all that time staring at the top, waiting for this moment, lead to the right preparations and the ability to utilize those preparations when the spotlight is shining brightest? Uh, I was thinking Anderson kind of reminds me of that kid on your high school basketball or volleyball team who the coach saw walking in the hallway at like six foot four skinny as a bone and just yanked them onto the team with like no words from the player themselves and then you just see them like at the volleyball net jumping tapping the net every time at the basketball net trying to get the rebound but just going up too soft in the paint you send them the ball for like a post-up play and they just like do a soccer throw at the net that's Anderson has so much athletic potential with her frame and you've just you see an awkwardness in her stand-up in her grappling that shows she hasn't fully tapped into that potential so is this is tomorrow night the moment she does step into it after I I keep saying five years it maybe it was 2017 but close enough so way longer than almost anyone in UFC history has been preparing for a title shot for what does Megan Anderson do with this opportunity the odds aren't close they shouldn't be close but I guess just as someone who's had their eye on Anderson for years it's interesting and to see her get this opportunity and there are some questions begged First of the three title fights, though, we've got Piotr Jan versus Aljamain Sterling. And I talked a little last podcast about why I'm so excited for this fight. And I'll go over it again. Both fighters had this very similar period in their career where they put together an impressive winning streak that put them at the top of the division. And they both felt like they deserved a shot at the title. And they both watched Henry Cejudo go get surgery tweet a lot and talk a lot of shit about super fights and then eventually end up letting Jose Aldo and Dominic Cruz 
be the guys that were going to walk in and challenge him for the title, ignoring who they both felt were the rightful number one contenders. And they both built up a lot of solidarity in this period, built up a lot of respect for each other. You saw Aljo, while frustrated to not get the eventual title shot after Cejudo retired, was still very complimentary and congratulatory towards Jan. And Jan, in likewise, when he saw Aljo take on Corey Santagin and just blitz him out of there with that submission, very congrat- congratulatory. This has been the fight to make for a long time now. There was talk of doing it for the rightful number one contender spot to challenge Cejudo, but I think it's so much better as a title fight, as an opportunity to take the throne as the king of the bantamweight division, which has so much talent blossoming and try and put together one of those legendary reigns. Yon looking to take, I guess, his second step in that direction. Aljo looking to do it first, but this is really going to be a deciding Rubicon moment, I think, for hope for the bantamweight division because these two guys have just been the guy for so long. And for Jan, his boxing has mostly brought him to the dance party, but it's been a complete put together training and skill set behind that boxing, the ability to kick when it's needed, the takedown defense, which has been phenomenal. The ground and pound he showed against Aldo was ferocious and kind of swung the fight for him early and late. Um, Just shown what championship level talent is in the bantamweight division so dominant ever since he entered the UFC. Um, Aljo, the funk master, a little more versatile. It sounds like he really wants to lean on his wrestling for this fight. And why wouldn't you? Jan is so scary on the feet and fairly untested in the grappling. So that's kind of the big question. Can Aljo get him to the ground? The funk master nickname works well for him just because he keeps it transitioning from one position to the next it's not like one and done takedown shots to hold you against the cage and do nothing until you get shrugged off you saw that in the Corey Santagin fight just lightning quick against the cage and then instantly working instantly moving try something it doesn't work and you're on to the third or fourth thing and Sandhagen's tapping out to a rear naked choke from the left arm he didn't say see coming before he knows it so for sure the best the highest level of grappling test that uh Jan has had to face but also the highest level of striking that Mariah or Aljo has had to face maybe since Marias who sat him down and knocked him out stone cold with that knee however many years back Jan really likes to wait and make his reads not attack first but let them have the opportunity the onus to move against him with just this little space in front of him sealed with how powerful and accurate his hands are so the instant shoot takedown has gotten Sterling into trouble once in his career. Has he adjusted that? I mean, he's shown great striking at times against Rivera, against Munoz. So can he 
blend that striking at someone against someone who's has it at the highest level enough to set up that takedown when he gets in can he really put yawn down and keep him down in a way no one's been able to do does the submission and ground and pound threat open up if once yawn has is kept down or does yawn make all the right reads just neutralize the grappling attempts and slowly accumulate damage and make sterling pay enough to put him away and hurt him the way he's done to literally everyone he's faced so far I'm this I'm definitely more excited than the Nunez Anderson fight for this one. The fact that it is within the division and their streaking and momentum is in the same place and there can only be one number one bantamweight lends itself to a different kind of uh hype than the super fight. I might even be more interested in it than the other just because like I said, there can only be one in the division and these are the rightful number one and number two fighters in this moment. So getting to see the two best in the world and division square off is what you want from a title fight. And that's what we're getting. Striker versus grappler matchup. Old Joe been hurt, tested at least once in recent-ish memory in the striking yawn never really tested challenged in the grappling which is gonna fall cannot wait that's the three title fights we've got but there's also two other fights on this main card <laughs> to go over quickly the first one drew dober versus islam makachev islam being the guy that everyone who's in Khabib's circles say this is going to be the next lightweight champion of the world not the next Khabib because he's such a unique guy but the Sambo credentials are there the wrestling is deadly the striking is probably more deadly and the discipline the the work you just see so many parallels and it's made this guy such an interesting fighter for such a long time and kind of similar to Habib, the knock spin activity. Can you put together enough consistent fights and stop having to pull out to long enough to get a UFC title shot because the lightweight division is so interesting and so loaded that it's not going to wait for you. So Drew Dober, not the name he was hoping to have when he was scheduled to fight Rafael Dos Anjos earlier. Nonetheless, I think when a guy like Habib is vouching for you so much, I think he's come to Vegas specifically to watch this fight. It, it does bolster your stock. And this guy is absolutely on the UFC radar. And with the way they're trying to move the lightweight title picture, you've got to think they'll want to slot Makachev in there if he gives them half a justification it would also be really interesting to see him fight Connor someday down the line. So a lot of potential hype can be generated from this fight just based off what Makachev has could be, is built up to be, and what's behind him. And he's facing a great opponent to build that hype some more on in Drew Dober, a guy who's just been on the tear in the lightweight division with his knockout power. Uh, coming from a wrestling background 
makes it a little more interesting too because you know he's got not going to be helpless or on paper he shouldn't be helpless against Makachev which makes it so much more impressive if he is but Makachev unsimilar to Khabib in one other way that he does have a loss on his record a knockout loss to Leonard DeSantos one of the biggest what-ifs in uh, the men's lightweight division I think and I talk about adversity a lot that's going to be interesting to monitor the career of Makachev having that one knockout loss how that affects and changes the way he implements his game plan in the cage because he knows what happens if he gets careless for a second against a solid striker if he makes a mistake and Drew Dober is a guy where he has that power to make that same thing happen again if Makachev does anything wrong so a guy who's could very well be the next champion of the men's lightweight division against a serious knockout threat who's been taking care of fairly high-level guys recently. All the hype and momentum on the table for grabs I, with the winner kind of one step out of the lightweight title picture probably. I'm, I can read the Habib post now saying give this guy a title shot if Makachev wins which I don't think would be deserved because there's just guys who have been beating higher level guys more frequently but he certainly should be close if he wins and of course if Dober wins then all that hype is his and the same case he's right there so I mean, with Makachev's luck, maybe this is the fight that falls off the card, although I feel like that whole camp should be immune to COVID by now. Uh, Fingers crossed for it. Should be really interesting. Then the last fight I have my eye on is the main card opener. Alexander Rakic versus Thiago Santos, a matchup between two highly ranked light heavyweight fighters with title implications for sure. In Thiago Santos... You have a guy who was one judge's one round away from ending the reign of John Jones. He had that injury in that fight, and with the knockout he had before the John Jones fight of the current champ, Jan Blahovich, it was really interesting to see his return to the octagon, and then he gets submitted by uh, Glover, who then becomes the number one contender. But for the most part, Santos has looked so good at light heavyweight moving up from middleweight he's just had so much power and he's had the technique and the patience to find it in almost all his fights and he's facing a similarly threatening guy in alexander rakic who is one of three light heavyweights i really have my eye on as the potential next title contender the other two being yuri prochaneza and magomed and Rakic has shown some ferocious striking as of late, but he also showed great grappling against Anthony Smith, who is a black belt that has kind of been able to win the fights there when they're not going his way on the feet. So I thought it was really impressive that Rakic first took him out on the feet with vicious leg kicks and then outgrappled him because Alexander Gustafsson, uh, Vulcan Uzdemir, two guys that come to mind who were doing fairly well against Smith on the feet, but then really got into trouble on the ground. So 
this fight kind of you have hopes for it to go similarly to uh Tiago Santos versus Jimmy Manoa when the two just came out up swinging and like rocked and hurt each other in just this like six minute barn burner that ultimately ended with Santos's victory both Santos can be a bit of a wild man at times and when you've got power and this terrifying monstrous Brazilian is just trying to hurt you with everything he's got the fight instinct and the fight or flight comes to mind and you can see guys just swing back so I think the matchmaker is hoping for something similar to what I just described to get this card started and I see it as very plausible anyone's fight both guys have so much power it It'll be interesting to see if the approach I just described is wrong and if either is a little more technical, a little more cautious, or if they just throw that into the wind and trust their hands and reflexes. Either way, huge title implications. Um, Look for the winner of this fight when discussing setting up who gets the next light heavyweight shot after Glover. Lots of interesting fights on the prelims, too. Ten of them is going to be make for a very long night. Um, the Cruz versus Kenny prelim headliner is certainly interesting. We'll see how they go, what gets canceled, if anything on the main card does, and if they have to move up fights. But overall, this is for sure a really stacked UFC card, and I'm excited for Super Fight Weekend. We'll be right back to talk some basketball. And we're back to talk some basketball. I just exhausted my lungs talking combat stuff, and I spent most of my late-night game-watching time spent on hockey. So the floor, the court, it's all yours, buddy. All right, thank you. Uh, We have reached the unofficial uh, halfway point of the NBA season with the All-Star game this weekend. There will be no games uh, for the next couple of nights, and... Uh, players getting a well-deserved break. I'm going to start in the Eastern Conference uh, and going to Atlanta, uh, not for the All-Star game, before a little bit of news coming out of their team. They fire head coach Lloyd Pierce and hire uh, assistant coach Nate McMillan to take over his duties. Um, and they win against the Heat and the Magic this week, so maybe a little bit of spark there. Um, there was a lot of news this season that Fans and players alike were not necessarily sold on Lloyd Pierce, and that is kind of why management had Nate McMillan in there as a an established assistant coach who has previously held a head coaching role. Um, the Hawks have struggled and, and underperformed their expectations based on the moves that they made in the offseason, so hopefully this will get them going as they are just half a game out of 10th uh, and for one of those playing spots, I know they expect to be a little bit higher than that, but uh, they are very much in the running and will be a team to follow uh, at the beginning of the second half of this season and, and see if they uh, change their trajectory a little bit. And you know that Trey Young's not happy that he wasn't named an all star. Uh, and so maybe he'll come out with an absolute uh, vengeance on his mind and and really take the league by storm, but it's hard to ever see him doing that if he can never play defense, but I digress. We move along. Uh, I just wanted to touch on the COVID apocalypse that the Raptors have been going through this week. Uh, No Fred, no OG, no Pascal uh, for both of their games against the Pistons and the Celtics this week. So it's really hard to draw any 
uh, conclusions from the results of those games. A little bit better effort against Boston, still taking a loss and just dreadful against the Pistons. But uh, yeah, it's been a tough week for them. It's not necessarily the greatest excuse because all these teams have been dealing with it. But uh, Raptors especially seem to be a team where if they're missing their their top guys, they really tend to fall apart. And uh, yeah, so hopefully they get this break to regroup and uh, they'll be back stronger. And uh, they had been gaining some momentum before the break and before this happened. So um, hopefully they can tap into that and have a really strong push in the second half of this season. I will move over to the West. Um, I kind of had... I was going to do this whole half report where my, my, like the most surprising team probably would be the Utah jazz for this half of the season. The most disappointing team I, I would say is probably Washington or uh, maybe Indiana because Indiana started out so well. And, and Washington had expectations when you have Bradley Beal and Russell Westbrook, you expect to be better than 14 and 20, but um, they have turned it on as of late and, and had a nice win against the Clippers yesterday. But um, the other team that I've been really impressed with and we really have to take note of is the Phoenix Suns. Uh, they are now second in the Western Conference. They have leapfrogged both the LA teams, uh, now actually have a game. They're a game ahead of the, the Lakers and only two and a half back of the Utah Jazz who seem to win every night. The Suns are 16-3 and three in their last 19 games and are third in the league in net rating. Um They are one of the slowest teams in the league in terms of pace with Paul and Booker living in the mid range and, and being the offensive engines. And this team has found contributions from a lot of different guys uh, like a Dario Saric, like a Frank Kaminsky, like a a Mikal Bridges. And then of course, uh, Cameron Payne. And so just interesting that they're getting a lot of great effort from these different guys and, uh, the questions going forward for them is, are these guys going to be ready when it becomes playoff time? Because a lot of them haven't played in big games yet. And the other's biggest question mark for this Phoenix Suns team is DeAndre Aiden, because he has the potential. He's a number one pick. He has the potential at 7'2", 250, to be one of the most dominant centers in the league. Um, and he has shown flashes of it when he wants to really impose himself on a game, he can. And with the league moving towards slightly smaller and more skilled lineups, he has the potential to really take over games for this Phoenix team. Um, he's been decent. Uh, he's a great screener for Paul and Booker, and uh, he lives in the mid-range game. He likes to shoot it when he has open look, but I think really like what I have been hearing from people recently is he needs to dial up the intensity. Um, I know when we are kids, they're always the, like the gentle giants. And and this is something that I'm, this is an idea that I'm stealing from other podcasts I've listened to, but I really think it, it applies to here where he needs to go out there and be like, I'm going to, if not block you, I will cause you physical damage every time you try and <laughs> score on me. Um, and just level up the intimidation and level up the physicality because he has the ability to do it. He's so physically imposing that if he can do that and he can provide a little bit more of just energy and physicality on both ends, then he's a perfect piece to put with Paul and Booker and and the ceiling on this team uh, raises indefinitely because this Phoenix team has been playing really well already. And this there's only room to grow. It's interesting. You talk about the best big men in the league right now, and it would be 
Jokic and Embiid stealing the show this year. Anthony Davis kind of taking a back seat, but I'm sure come playoff time, we'll all evaluate his stock a little higher. And when you talk about those three, you really talk about the skill. So it's when you think about Aiton in comparison to those three, do you think, where do you see the gap as being bigger? Like he has more to fill in that intimidation role you're describing or more to grow into in terms of skill? Well, I see, you can take a little bit of each from from each of these guys' games, right? A Jokic, Embiid, AD, and then even like a Bam, right? If you're thinking uh, guys who uh, – centers who had a ton of success last season and Bam, like for some reason, still underrated this season, probably should have been an all-star. He's awesome. And it's a guy like Bam and Joel where they kind of had that toughness and, and even Bam more so, but where like – he is so prideful on the defensive end. He wants to take every matchup. He wants to block every guy who attacks the paint. I remember that unreal block he had against Tatum in Eastern conference finals uh, was spectacular. Just stuff like that, where he really takes pride in the defense and is gritty and gets in there against guys. DA needs a little bit more like that because Phoenix actually has been willing to switch him out on the perimeter. He's surprisingly fleet of foot for someone his size and, and has done a decent job against uh, per- perimeter players when he's had to switch onto them, uh, which is an incredible luxury to have when you have a guy his size. And then with Joel, like Embiid, when he decides to take over a game, th- he's truly unstoppable. He'll block anything on the defensive end and he'll go punish guys in the post on the other end. I don't think the Suns need Aiton to be the uh, punisher on the offensive end, but if they have a defensive intimidator and a guy who's going to rack up offensive rebounds and maybe score in the post when he has a smaller guy on him, that's what they need him to be. They don't need him to be like the high usage facilitate out of the post uh, guy like a Jokic or Embiid where like they can go and score on anyone, but also if the double team comes, they kick it out. He's more of like in a screen and roll, if if two guys go to Paul and Booker, he's going to get it and score over whoever his matchup is in that point in the rotation. Uh, and then with Anthony Davis, like AD is a guy who lives in the mid-range face-up, creating his own shot. I think DA likes doing that when he's open on the catch. He likes the mid-range. Again, doesn't need to be able to create his own shot necessarily, but someone who needs to take advantage of when he has a smaller guy on him and really punish them with his size. Um, and... He definitely has the potential to be in that. And Paul's been in his ear incessantly all season. Whenever you watch their games, like always a different guy talking to him. And Monty Williams done it. Monty Williams looks a little bit Nick Nurse, Nurse ish. Wow, that was tough for me. Nick Nurse ish this season with the way he's been very flexible with the starting lineup. How Nurse would uh, kind of vacillate between an Ibaka Gasol center going small at points. Monty Williams has done that too with Kaminsky, Saric, Aiton kind of free flowing them based on the matchups and what, what the situation dictates in that point. So uh, I picked Williams for coach of the year. I'm feeling pretty good about that right now. And this Phoenix Suns team has been really, really impressive. And it's going to be interesting to see how they perform come playoff time. Cause uh, yeah, just it's happy for Phoenix Suns fans who had to endure quite a while of, of uh, crappy basketball. And, and now they're back and, kind of the first time they've been really good since those Steve Nash years so shout out to Phoenix they are on a roll right now and really fun to watch all right 
we will move on to the all-star festivities this weekend. Uh, the rising stars challenge, which will not be played, uh, but they still made the teams and they were announced on NBA top shot, which I thought was interesting. Um, five Canadians make the world team. Uh, I think they only announced 10 players on the team. So really, really exciting that we get a ton of representation. Nikhil Alexander-Walker from New Orleans, uh, RJ Barrett, of course, from New York, Brandon Clark from the Grizzlies, Lou Dort, the Dorcher Chamber uh, from Oklahoma City, and uh, Michael Mulder from the Golden State Warriors. I hadn't heard of this guy. Yeah, he. Uh, I don't know much about him either, but late round, late round pick, um, he can shoot the heck out of the ball, and definitely a guy who it, it feels – like he's kind of the new era Nick Stauskas, um, but he fits well into the Golden State system because he moves well without the ball and he can shoot it really well. Uh, and just, yeah, happy that getting some recognition because he is kind of the one name on the list for the world team where you kind of go, hmm, maybe haven't heard of him because the rest of the guys are either fo- first round picks or uh, even in the case of Campazzo. A rookie technically this year and a rising star technically in NBA standards, but has been a pro in the European League for a while now and a really solid player who is is known because he does great stuff for the Nuggets off the bench. But yeah, Mulder definitely is the the odd man out on that list, but very happy for him that he was able to make the team. Yeah, getting more and more excited about the future of Canadian basketball five, ten years from now if that sort of pace can continue. Yeah. The Although- biggest thing is like for the world competitions is if guys actually play. Cause we haven't seen a Wiggins really Thompson has gone occasionally, but like those top end Canadian players have rarely actually gone to tournaments. So if we have one year where our full Canadian rosters actually together, then I think we have a good shot, but it's just whether or not those guys are going to commit to playing. And I think if they see more and more guys like this in the rising stars challenge, they see that they have the talent around them to actually make a run. Then they more, they may be more incentivized to go and play with the team. So I would love to see that. Yeah, no, it's, it's more about a general optimism for starting to see a steadier and solider foundation be coming into place with just more and more of these Canadians becoming strong parts of teams that you think five, 10 downs, five, 10 years down the line, maybe you have a number one overall pick who actually lives up to all the hype and you have all these consistently good players. And that's the time where it's like, all right, let's make a run. Yeah. In the end though, it might not matter just because the U S is so good every year. And and that kind of feeds into the rising stars team for the U S being absolutely absurd. Uh, I don't know if you read it, but I will read off the names right now. LaMelo Ball, Anthony Edwards, Tyrese Halliburton, Tyler Hero, DeAndre Hunter, Keldon Johnson, Ja Morant, Michael Porter Jr., Zion Williamson, and James Wiseman. Just, (laughs) it's ridiculous. It's just absurd. The amount of talent that these Americans have consistently year over year, that is why they do Team USC versus Team World. Uh, but just looking at this list, like it makes my jaw drop because each one of these guys is a, like, if not a top 10 pick, a first round pick who has an uncapped ceiling still to come. And it also just makes me really excited for the future of the NBA because so many of these guys are already stars and they're in their first, second, third years of their career. So really, really fun to at least acknowledge 
the young and upcoming talent in the league and looking forward to seeing their success in the coming years. Yeah, that's I want to see that team play like the Lakers and just know how it goes. That's a scary lineup. Yeah. Okay. I thought it would be fun now to pick our competition winners uh, for the three-point competition, the skills competition, and the dunk contest, which will happen at halftime. Uh, I know you probably didn't read the article, so I'll read the names off for you because (laughs) I don't want to – like, it's a lot of names to remember. Uh, So we will go and start with – the three-point competition, we have Steph Curry, Devin Booker, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, Zach Levine, and Donovan Mitchell are the six competitors in this year's three-point competition. Each of the competitions normally have more competitors, but I think they really tried to condense the number of people coming to this bubble. Uh, and so they tried to pick mostly from all-stars for these competitions. Um, I think the only ones are the guys in the dunk contest and then Robert Covington in the skills competition. But everyone else I think is an all-star, which is good. They want to really tighten that bubble. So out of those names that I mentioned, who's your pick? It's got to be Curry, right? I'm tempted for a second to go with Booker, but I, I don't, I wish I knew Curry's uh, three point contest track record, but I, I just, I can't pick against him period, let alone in a three point contest. So I know for sure that Curry and Booker have won uh, the competition previously. And um, yeah, it's, and I think Joe Harris won last year. The obvious pick is Curry or Booker because obviously like they're the best shooters and they're just incredible. But I think I'm going to go with Zach Levine this year uh, because he has really stepped up. This is his first all-star opportunity. He's been shooting lights out this season. And I think this is an opportunity to give him another stage to prove himself and compete against guys. Um, and he's got a really smooth stroke and yeah, why not? Why not take the dark horse? Uh, and so it's not boring and I'm not picking the same guy as you. So uh, Zach Levine, let's see what you got, buddy. All right. All right. We will move on to the skills competition, which involves the pass through the hoop, the layup and the three point shot. It's really, you know, and they dribble through the obstacles. It's not that exciting, but I just like the, part where they match up the guard versus like the center like when Jokic or Porzingis was doing it I just it's fun to watch the guys of all shapes and sizes so this year we have Luka Doncic, Demonis Sabonis, Julius Randle, Nikola Vucevic, Chris Paul, and Robert Covington. You go first this time. Okay uh, again the obvious there is an obvious pick here um, but I'm going to go Actually, and then there's there are a couple guys who have already competed in this. I think I'm going to go with Chris Paul because he seems like the guy who's the most intensely competitive out of all the guys in this competition. And he's a great passer, which is kind of the key. If if you don't get this pass first try in this competition, you're usually pretty screwed. Um, so I bet on him to get that pass in the in the net first try, and then he's just got hit a layup and a three. So I'm going to go with Chris Paul. I'll take the obvious one then and say Luca. Uh, make the case he has a bit of a chip on his shoulder. He has a chance to let off some steam, tap into that competitive energy, and either he's going to give absolutely no fucks and just come out looking really flat, or he's going to come and dominate. So I'll bet on the latter. I would say another key competitor here is Sabonis. I believe he's done it in previous years, and he's a solid all-around player. All righty. 
we now go to the dunk contest, which only has three competitors this year. And the dunk contest is just so disappointing. I, I mean, they get they get their highlights, they get crazy dunks, but you don't have a Vince Carter, a Dwight Howard, a Blake Griffin jumping over the car, something about, I don't know what has changed incentive-wise about it, but the, you want to see like a Giannis and a LeBron competing in a dunk contest. I, you're about to read out some names, and I'm sure they're excellent dunkers, but you're not going to recreate that Superman moment. Um, yeah it's it's tough right because a the level of creativity athleticism etc is so high now that it's nearly impossible for one of these guys to do a new dunk like at this point the dunk contest is coming becoming more about like the narrative you put behind your dunks as opposed to the dunks themselves like the truly last like kind of special dunks we've seen were from Zach Levine and Aaron Gordon in 2016 when they were pulling out stuff we had never seen before but it truly feels like now there's not a lot these guys can do that will make you lose your mind because uh, at a certain point like everyone's just so become numbed and used to that level of athleticism which back in the 80s when Dominique and MJ and then you have and then you have Vince Carter in, in the 2000s doing stuff that people hadn't seen before it was that much more exciting but now, because the guys are so freakishly athletic, they can do all those dunks that those guys were doing in 10, 20 years ago, but that they, it comes easier to them. So they got to explore and do even more creative and exciting things. And, and then you lead yourself to having missed dunks and, and, so, so, and so on. Yeah, no, I'd just love to see Giannis try and like jump off the three-point line and see what he can do or something. <laughs> And then the other piece of it is just the top guys not wanting to get injured, right? That's why LeBron's never done one, and which is unfortunate because I think we missed out on seeing something special. Like a young LeBron doing a dunk contest would have been awesome to see, but he's thinking in the long term, and, and obviously it's worked out for him because he knows his body better than anyone else and has been so sustainably great. So I will read off the names. Um, I'd be surprised. I, you might know one. So here, here we go. We have Anthony Sin- Simons. Okay, he plays for Portland. Uh, we have Cassius Stanley, <laughs> Indiana, and we have Obi Toppin. Heard it. Yes, so he the number over number eight overall pick to the New York Knicks. Those are our three competitors. Uh, as you can see, I think the gun the dunk contest has moved a little bit more towards either the younger guys or those um, bench rotation guys who are looking to make a name for themselves. You think of like a Derek Jones Jr. when he participated in the dunk contest, a Pat Connaughton things like that. Uh, I'm sure these guys are going to have some great dunks. Uh, I'm going to go with Cassius Stanley because he's the guy that I know least about, which means he's probably the guy with the most exciting athleticism. I believe he's a guard. So uh, I just always things favor the guards. Everything just looks a little bit better because they're smaller. Uh, So I'm going to go with Stanley. To preserve the integrity of my other picks, which were somewhat informed, I'm not going to make a completely uninformed pick. So who are you going with? No, I'm not. Oh, no pick at all. All right. Uh, Preserve the integrity of the other ones. (laughs) Ain't no stopping Obi Toppin. He might pull out some Dayton flyer dunks. And then Anthony Simons, he's a long athletic dude, so 
Um, I'm hoping it'll be something exciting. I think they went with three so that they didn't want the contest going too long so they could keep the halftime short and keep guys fresh. Uh, but yeah, I uh, hope they pull out something we've never seen because obviously we're a little bit down on the dunk contest, but the dunk contest is something that like all you need is one kind of back and forth battle to really engage a ton of people. It's still like one thing guy, people will gather around to see someone dunk a basketball. It's just an athletic feat. That's so fun to watch. So even as much as you might be down on it, you're still going to watch it because it's fun, right? It's just fun. And you'll get stuff like Dwayne Wade putting up a nine and then you'll have the memes for a year. So yeah. It's uh, well suited. I think what it's become to just slot it in at the halftime show. I'm sure. Yeah. As long as Uh, that's well contained, it'll be a good dose of what it is. For sure. Okie dokie. We look forward to that all-star night in Atlanta on Sunday night. Uh, But that wraps things up for me in terms of basketball. Uh, We'll take a quick break and come back for a couple more storylines to finish off the show. And we're back to wrap up the show. Sorry to interrupt you there. Take it away. No worries. I I realized last second. Um, Okay, so we got a little bit of football and a little bit of baseball to talk. It'll be really brief, but football news uh, came out a couple days ago, so I'm sure everyone's been bored to death with the story. But I had to mention J.J. Watt signing a two-year $31 million deal with the Arizona Cardinals after parting ways with the Texans. Uh, $23 million guaranteed. Many people thought he was going to go to a surefire contender like a Green Bay, like a Pittsburgh, uh, teams along those lines. But uh, in the end, he does kind of what the average person would do and take the best money with the best winning opportunity. And that happened to be the Arizona Cardinals. They could pay him the most. And they're a team that's definitely not in the bottom half of the league. And so uh, an interesting move. The Cardinals seem to be... Uh, seem to love stealing players from the Texans for very little value uh, after getting DeAndre Hopkins in a trade last offseason. Um, the Texans, again, they tried to do this whole nice thing by splitting with JJ and releasing him and letting him go where he wanted, but they definitely could have gotten something in a trade for him. So really, really, uh, just another poor move made by Houston, Texas front office and Uh, I feel bad for Texans fans and Houston as a whole. They've really lost a ton. We don't need to continue to harp on it. Uh, But if you're an Arizona fan, you got to be excited because even though JJ is out of his prime when he was probably the best defensive player in the, from 2010 to 2016 range, um, he is not what he was, but he is still going to give you plenty of uh, production. Uh, He was ranked, 15th out of 119 qualified pass rushers in pass pass rush win rate, according to ESPN stats uh, last season. He had five sacks, two forced fumbles, and an interception. Uh, I think two or three of those turnovers came in one game against Detroit, so maybe knock the the list down a little bit because that game was brutal on Thanksgiving. But he is a really solid defensive guy. He might get a little bit less reps, but more uh, dangerous reps for him, like more third down pass rush opportunities. And I think he's really going to produce for this Arizona team. Uh, He gets added to an offensive or defensive line that includes Chandler Jones, uh, who is one of the top pass rushers in the league. So they're going to complement each other really well. And I think there's going to be a lot of success from that defensive line. It's, it's a great pickup for the Cardinals. 
Um, it's another great talent being added to the already loaded NFC West division. Uh, the Cardinals have the worst odds to win that division right now. It was seven to one. They pick up JJ Watt and they move to six to one, still the worst odds. Uh, Cause it's a division that includes San Francisco, Seattle, and the Los Angeles Rams. Like the division is just so deep and filled with talent um, that this was kind of a necessary move for the Cardinals to even be in the conversation. So just, um, happy for JJ that he's found the situation he wanted and it is going to be an important move for the Cardinals and and we'll see what sort of effect it has for them uh, moving towards uh, the next NFL season but just wanted to talk a little bit about that I wanted to finish uh, off sports uh, by just talking about a little bit more Blue Jays spring training talk George Springer had a hit in his first at bat with the Jays nice to say uh, he looks like he's settling in nicely. And we got to see a little bit of Austin Martin. Um, he had a couple of errors in his first appearance, which is probably nerves uh, first kind of action with the big league club. And, but he did flash some potential. He made a great uh, high flying jumping grab on a line drive. Um, and some of the young arms for the Jays have looked solid um, flashing some potential. So just more excitement to build on for the Jays. Uh, as we continue through spring training, but I just wanted to mention Springer and Martin in particular, uh, like to see these guys settling in with their team and, and looking to, for them to contribute something now and, and long into the future. So that wraps up sports for us. I wanted to finish up the show, uh, unfortunately on a bit of a lower note, but, um, the great Walter Gretzky passed today at the age of 82 lost his battle to Parkinson's disease um he of course ever is famously known as being the father of the greatest hockey player of all time Wayne Gretzky but he was so much more than that uh him and his wife were incredibly generous and donated to a lot of charitable foundations over the years that have been big proponents of a lot of great things that have happened in Ontario um from the stories I've heard Whenever people were in town to visit and, and wanted to come by, he was always had an open door, was willing to let people in, show him some of his memorabilia. He's probably got, I, I there was a story that came out last year where people uh, robbed his house and it was terrible because he's just got like millions of dollars worth of <laughs> Gretzky merchandise, right? That his son has signed and given to him. And he loved just sharing that with everyone. And, and it's just a great, guy and, and a wonderful family and um it is he is going to be sorely missed and uh of course the Gretzkys are hockey royalty in Canada so always sad for someone who's been such a positive great piece of the hockey community uh when they pass so uh thoughts and prayers are with the Gretzky family and and just wanted to shout out Walter because he's a great dude and uh brought us a lot of great memories so thank you and yeah rest in peace yeah, there were some fantastic stories from a red-eyed panel right last night, right after the news broke. And my favorite probably touched on what you were getting at of uh, Walter taking an opportunity with uh, the Russians in town, one of the best team rushes that's ever been to show three of their like top five players, uh, Gretzky's memorabilia, and just kind of brag it into the face. Uh, Lariana, the only one I'm more familiar with but yeah i it it's sad that only kind of seen the impact he had 
on others did I kind of realize, but Canada's loss. Yeah, very much so. So a sad way to end the show, but definitely needed to be acknowledged. Uh, We want to thank each and every one of you for listening once again. Uh, you can find us on Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, all that good stuff. Uh, we're also on YouTube, and we're trying to grow that a little bit. So uh, if you want to share with your friends or take a look there, you get to see our not-so-beautiful faces, but we're up there and the content's there. Uh, we appreciate each and every one of you. Thank you for listening. Uh, hopefully it, it continues to be entertaining, and we look forward to keeping you updated in the world of sports as we move things along here. Uh, Max, I'll throw it over to you. Yeah, we quietly passed the three-month mark of doing this a couple weeks ago, which I wanted to acknowledge it's been really enjoyable so far, and I think we're still just finding our stride, gain our groove, continuing to improve, and we will continue to do so next time. But until then, Sports Next Door signing off.